This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. Here are the words of San Francisco Archbishop Salvatore Cordiglione. He's writing an op-ed in the Washington Post. Everyone who advocates for abortion in public or in private life, who funds it or presents it as a legitimate choice, participates in great moral evil. Abortion is therefore the most pressing human rights challenge of our time. You cannot be a good Catholic and support expanding a government-approved right to kill innocent human beings. The answer to crisis pregnancies is not violence, but love for both mother and child. That appeared in the Washington Post as an op-ed. Why is it in there as news, or why is it so seldom referred to in the rest of the media? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. You have coined a term lighthouse syndrome. What is it and how does it apply to today's conversation about this archbishop in San Francisco saying you just can't be a good Catholic and advocate for abortion? Well, I I didn't coin that term. It's been around a long time, but it's one of those things that when you become an adult of a certain age, you sometimes have trouble remembering source material. I think most of our listeners would be more familiar with the exact same concept expressed by Sherlock Holmes in the famous story about the dog that didn't bark. But we will um, leave this, you know, with the image I have used over and over and over at Get Religion. But it comes up about twice a year where you you have something that happens in the news and you go, wow, that's going to be a big story. And then there's no coverage at all in the mainstream press. At which point, you begin having to try to figure out, why wasn't that a story? So the lighthouse image, let me just read it from a post I did. I forget how long ago this one was, but this is one wording. Once there was a man who lived in a lighthouse on the foggy Atlantic. The lighthouse had a gun that sounded a warning every hour. The keeper tended the beacon and kept enough shells in the gun so that it would keep firing. After decades, he could sleep right through the now routine blasts. Then the inevitable happened. He forgot to load extra shells, and in the dead of night, the gun did not fire. This rare silence awoke the keeper, who sprang from bed shouting, What was that? And the point was is that you get used to seeing things make news day after day, week after week, year after year, in the case of this story, decade after decade. And when something comes out that's related to this major story, and there aren't headlines, there is silence, it's like the gun that didn't go off. Or in the Sherlock Holmes story, in a murder, the crucial clue was the dog who didn't bark at a particular criminal at a particular moment, which established that wasn't when anyone entered the building. In this case, we're talking about that story that you and I have talked about before, which is the status of pro-abortion rights, Catholics, and whether the bishops of the United States are going to be able to say anything clear about the teachings of their church 
on the reception of Holy Communion. And in particular, how do they deal with people who are in obvious positions of power who openly oppose the teachings of the church? Or, there's a variation here, their actions and words openly oppose the teachings of the church, on abortion in particular, gay marriage, a few other things. But meanwhile, they then turn around and say something like, oh, I still believe the teachings of the church, and I live by them in my private life, but I can't do anything to enforce them or defend them in a, the political arena because, pick a wording, that would violate the separation of church and state, that would violate my conscience as a Catholic politician, all kinds of things. Then you occasionally have Catholics who openly state they disagree with the teachings of the Catholic Church. Now, in the past, we've seen this primarily with Catholic political leaders. It becomes an issue when they hit the level of being a candidate for the White House. Well, now we have a Catholic in the White House. We've seen a tsunami of headlines speculating on what the U.S. bishops would or wouldn't do with Joe Biden. Often we forget that the Speaker of the House in many ways has been even more outspoken on abortion rights than Biden. She consistently refers to herself as a devout practicing Catholic who wants to defend, in this case, is now calling for the codification of Roe versus Wade into federal law before the U.S. Supreme Court does anything to further support state laws such as the one in Texas, which is very controversial. Now, under Catholic law, the crucial thing is who is her bishop? Where does she live and where is she canonically resident? And in her case, that's Northern California and San Francisco. So we have a very interesting editorial. Interesting in that it uses so many arguments that have been around for so long, but states them openly by Archbishop Cordelion in San Francisco. And he doesn't say this applies to Pelosi. But right at the beginning, he brings up the Texas law and says President Biden announced a whole-of-the-government effort to find ways to overcome the Texas measure. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi denounced the Supreme Court's refusal as a cowardly, dark-of-night decision to uphold a flagrantly unconstitutional assault on women's rights and health and promised new legal action. This ban necessitates codifying Roe versus Wade in federal law. Now, that's the archbishop mentioning Biden and then also tacking on the reference to Pelosi. I heard from several people that said, now you're going to have to watch the media coverage of this. This is going to be big, kind of a here we go again call, you know, from a couple of readers. And then there was a notice on Twitter with someone raising the question, simply stated, okay, there's been no mainstream coverage of this story why not? And I think that's a really interesting story, or question, I should say, you, when you look at the media age we're in right now. So that's why I 
brought up the lighthouse image again, the gun that didn't fire, the dog that didn't bark. Here was the story in a prominent place, the op-ed page of the Washington Post. It directly connects itself both to the President of the United States and even more relevant under Catholic law, the Speaker of the House who is resident in this Archbishop's territory, so to speak. She's on his turf. He is in charge of her pastoral care. He is in charge of the priests who deal with her on a regular basis. Why didn't this op-ed get any news coverage? I mean, just for starters, from the Washington Post itself. Not that long ago, the Washington Post did a story about this archbishop and Pelosi and kind of raised the issue. What would happen if the archbishop came out with something explicit on this? Wow, wouldn't that be a kind of a constitutional crisis or a church-state crisis? Well, here it is in the pages of their own newspaper, and so far, we have no stories. So, Terry, I'm wondering, you mentioned before that this is a, a shot at, for lack of a better word, it's not a shot. This is directed at, primarily at Speaker Pelosi, and then by inference, at Joe Biden, the Washington Post is not often want to criticize the president, much less pile on. I think the, the, <laughs> the mainstream press uh, feels mm-hmm. like even the slightest criticism of this president is piling on when he's kind of making some of his own problems. Could that account for the fact they just let this op-ed float around in their paper without making any news of it? Well, I think it's possible. At the same time, if all you say over and over is the Catholic Church has to deal with Biden, the Catholic Church has to deal with Biden, it's easy to ignore that someone like Nancy Pelosi is not an unimportant figure in American life and American politics. And in this case, you have silence from the relevant, well, we actually have the Cardinal of D.C. saying, I will not deny Biden communion. Well, in other words, what worked when he was vice president will continue now. And so far, we have silence from the actual bishop, or rather new bishop in Connecticut, where Biden is still, I believe, canonically resident. I don't know if he's ever moved that to Washington, D.C. But meanwhile, Cordelion, I think people want him to go away because he is directly relevant to the Pelosi case, and he isn't being silent. And he's speaking up in the national debates on this upcoming document where the U.S. bishops have said they will address kind of what are the connections between Holy Communion and certain beliefs and practices within the church. I think at this point people have decided, some mainstream reporters have decided that if we just don't pay attention to this guy, he doesn't exist. And if he doesn't exist, then the Pelosi case doesn't exist. And if neither of them exist, we can keep saying the Biden story is over because of what the Cardinal of D.C. has said, this is no longer relevant, get over it. When in reality, there's no sign that this is over. And as I've said many times, the crucial point we have to get out of this is the U.S. bishops are divided on how to deal with this. 
their division dates back to a policy that was pretty much put in place by former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick, who is not exactly someone they want to bring up as an authoritative voice on a policy about communion and politicians that they kind of are trying to blur away. If they don't want to talk about the Archbishop of San Francisco, you better believe they don't want to talk about Theodore McCarrick, you know, in the context of this. I was also struck by several things in the article that was written by Archbishop Cordelion that make it important again. There's a term that was used a lot by the Archbishop of Los Angeles, Gomez, in the original pieces saying why we need to talk about this. He referred to self-professed Catholics. We have a problem when self-professed Catholics enter public life and say things and do things that openly conflict with the church. And a lot of people pointed that out. I know we did it, Get Religion. Self-professed is kind of, this is what many of the bishops think of when they hear someone like Nancy Pelosi say, I am a devout Catholic. I am a practicing Catholic. They would say she is a self-professed Catholic. And at some point we have to get into the weeds, so to speak, of canon law and decide whether anyone has can do anything, should talk to her privately and then talk with her publicly about her actions that openly defy church teachings. And so the self-professed thing was crucial because he paired it with the term openly oppose. Self-professed Catholics who openly oppose church teachings. And I think we're going to have incredible debates among the U.S. bishops of whether to include either of those two terms in this upcoming statement on the meaning of Holy Communion and how it relates to the lives of Catholics. He also gets into a famous case, which has been often discussed from you know over a half century ago or more, involving the Archbishop of Nolens in Louisiana, who in 1984 started a chain of events which used to be, used to be, hailed by the Catholic left as a great example of a Catholic bishop doing what a Catholic bishop should do. He admitted two black students to New Orleans Notre Dame Seminary, and you know, three years later, he ordered the removal of white and colored signs from Catholic churches. He wrote a pastoral letter in 1953. He ordered an end to segregation throughout the Archdiocese of Nolens. Very famous actions. Then in 1955, he closed a church for refusing to accept a black priest and followed up with a pastoral letter that said, racial segregation as such is morally wrong and sinful because it's a denial of the unity and solidarity of the human race as conceived by God in the creation of Adam and Eve. 62, he formally announces the end of segregation in Nolan's Catholic schools. Now, you have politicians who rise up in opposition to, you know, you have a former judge, you have some prominent public leaders and politicians who stand out against his actions, who 
stand up and say he didn't have any right to do that. We want to continue. We're devout Catholics. We want to continue doing what we want to do on this. And what does he do? He excommunicates them. He doesn't just deny them communion. He tosses them out of the church. And in this, in his discussion of this case, where he names over and over and over these actions, Cordelion finally notes two of the three who were excommunicated, two of the three later repented and died Catholics in good standing. The big word there is repent, because the issue is whether the bishops will get into the connection between confession of sins, repentance, and the reception of communion. And in effect, they could imply that these self-professed Catholics who openly oppose the church teachings need to publicly repent. And that leads to the word sin, and all of which are things that reporters are not fond of putting in news stories. So it's a fascinating piece. It's very strong stuff. And you can tell what Cordelion is doing. The archbishop is clearly saying this case involving race will not go away. And the very teachings of the church about the value of the human person from conception to natural death, the very teachings that give us our teachings on race, that give us our teachings on immigration and, and related topics, we're still facing it. And Cordelion is, in effect, asking, can you imagine the uproar if we took all of these actions against self-professed Catholic politicians in our age? What would happen if we did all these things to, say, Nancy Pelosi? He's not only kind of calling into question the Catholicity of Catholics like Pelosi and Biden, but in a crux piece, Cordero Leone is quoted yeah. saying of people who run pro-life crisis pregnancy centers, quote, I cannot be prouder of my fellow Catholics who are so prominent in providing this vital service. To them, I say, you are the ones worthy to call yourselves devout Catholics. Mm-hmm. This is open warfare now, even though the press may not be p- paying attention to it. Yeah, and the fact that crux which is a very interesting publication. It's a publication for Catholic news. It covers Catholic news, but its roots are among some of the most famous mainstream Catholic reporters, John L. Allen Jr. in particular, one of the most prominent Catholic journalists in the world. So Crux sits in this middle position between the church press and the mainstream press. And I would argue that if Crux is covering this. This is a stage more than the Catholic wire services, the Catholic opinion pages, and various other things. The crux piece just meticulously marches through this statement from Cordelion and keeps noting, this is why this is a story. This is why this is a story. This is why this is important. This is what Pelosi has said. This is what the archbishop has literally said in response, in one case involving the good Catholic phrase. She says, I am a good Catholic, and the archbishop comes up immediately with, you can't call yourself a good Catholic if. I mean, so you just stated that this is open warfare, so to speak, between the archbishop of San Francisco and this 
very prominent political leader who is a, a, a member of his flock, under Catholic law, directly a member of his flock. The crux piece strikes me as, as almost like a declaration. This, not, not a shot of war at the mainstream press, that this could still end up being covered in the elite newsrooms. Maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. But the crux piece, when I read it, just said, crux has no doubt that this is a story. And not just to Catholics, this is a national news story, and here's why. Powerful stuff from an important publication. Terry Mattingly is senior fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly Odd Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.